Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome again to EdTech Innovators. This time, we're going to be talking to Kate Eberly Walker, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Presence. She'll also be talking about women in business, being an author, being a mother, and plenty more besides, but primarily teletherapy and what it can do for children. Enjoy. So hello, Kate Eberly Walker, and so pleased that you could join us uh, at long last. We've had many, many false starts, but it's really good to see you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I think the first thing that we should talk about is the um, behemoth that is presence. Um, so tell us about your your involvement in that and how it's evolved over the last couple of years and, and where it's going or where it's yes. heading. I would love to. Thank you for asking. So at Presence, we, we are the leading provider of teletherapy services and technology for K through 12 school districts who are delivering special education programs. We're doing speech therapy, school psychology services, occupational therapy, and mental health counseling. And so the company, the company was founded all the way back in 2009 when the two co-founders first saw an opportunity for to jump in with technology to make connections across geographies because they were starting to see all the way back then that there were communities, there were school districts that just could not hire enough expert clinicians to deliver the therapy services for kids. And so they started working particularly in more remote rural districts that were having this challenge and they came to them and said, well, what if we could do it online? What if we could bring you great therapists who just happen to live somewhere else to make sure that all of your kids are getting their treatment? And so that, that's how the company first broke out and, and started growing. And then I came along in 2019, so a little over four years ago, as the company was really finding a need for it beyond those rural markets into urban centers, into suburban areas. Um, the need just kept on growing to, you know, just as there's been needs in other areas of school staffing, teacher staffing, there are just not enough speech therapists, school psychologists, and so on um, anywhere in, in schools. And so as the need kept growing, the company was expanding to really serve nationally. Uh, and I came in to, to help the company do that and to make sure that we could continue to, to grow our outreach and our services. And then, and then COVID happened uh, about a year after I joined the company and just changed everything in terms of the experiences people had with teletherapy, the exposure to it, the awareness of it. And, you know, it's, it's sort of been, um, you know, been a dramatic and rapid change for us and people really recognizing uh, that teletherapy exists for these areas, that you can serve kids these ways. And um, it, it's been a really, it's been a really fast, fast ride over these past couple of years, just to try to keep up with all the demand that's out there. Mm, okay, so even pre-COVID, the demand was was surging. Uh, why? What what kind of data do you have on why that might have been? So across the country, there, you know, every school is running special education therapy services, right? That's that's the law that they provide those services to all of their kids. And if you look back over time, there has never been 
there's never been enough staffing to cover all of the services. So it was pretty common always for a school to, you know, perhaps be serving 70%, 80%, 90% of uh, the therapy requirements, just the baseline requirements for, for the children in their schools. And, you know, really unusual for any school to really be fully covered. And that, that was fundamentally about hiring gaps, staffing gaps, um, this is one area that that's pretty different from other parts of of K through twelve schools that might have budget challenges um, to being able to you know to hire their staff here. That wasn't the issue. It was just you know they're, they're posting job listings, going to job fairs, conferences, and they they just couldn't hire and attract enough therapists to to move to every school district's area to to serve the kids. And, and it's harder to, you know, to do so efficiently because a district might have numerous school sites, there's a drive in between every one, there's, you know, maybe a few kids at every school that need those services. So it, it was sort of crying out for a technology solution. In my opinion, it was one of these areas where you could look at it and say like, well, we really need every minute of that speech pathologist to count. And uh, if we can have a way for her to reach all of these kids without having to spend, you know, three hours of her day in her car going from location to location, that's a win right there. So th there were some of those early areas that I think we saw in other parts of online education, online tutoring is a sector that, that I come from personally from tutor.com, where you saw this, you know, really valuable expert time, you're trying to make the most of it. And you could look to technology as a way to, uh, you know, to reduce those inefficiencies and, and make every minute count. So I think that that was really the starting point of this for presence was having, you know, really valuable time, uh, real, you know, a constraint there and seeing that you could get more, get more therapy fit into the day of a therapist if, if uh, you could use teletherapy. Mm -hmm. So it, it, aside from the, the improved access, of course, the, the, mm -hmm. as you said, there's no need for a three hour drive to, to access a therapist. It can be done online. Are there any other ways in which um, the um, teletherapy adds value to the experience for the for the for the child? So there's the there, there's the experience itself, you know, and more and more so, kids today are, you know, not just fluent in uh, online environments, technology supported environments, but you know, very comfortable in those environments and. Uh, very used to in all aspects of their lives. I think we, we all are as adults too. You used to dynamic environments, iterative environments. You know, you, you can keep on changing things uh, to to keep your interest held. And so, if you think of that in the context of a therapy session for a child, uh, having different games and you know curriculum and worksheets and pictures and videos have, having all of that just easily at your disposal to keep on changing out to drive engagement you can drive stronger engagement than um, you might be able to with you know whatever was in that sort of proverbial bag or box of, of tricks you have whatever you were able to carry into a session in the offline world. So there, there's an engagement benefit um, that is really helpful, especially for younger children. As you look to those older grades, middle school, high school, 
that's where you have a different kind of benefit that we see, that we see that we hear a lot about from our mental health counselors of you know something about again that comfort interacting through a screen and having a little bit of protection or distance in in that relationship between the student and the therapist our therapists say that that helps them make make progress in advancing the relationship and opening up with a student more quickly. Um, so these are some of the areas that I think this this is really getting into the interesting, you know, I, I think first with online innovation, you look for, you know, can we be sure it's it's equivalent, it's valid, we can do it this way, you know, it, it doesn't have to be done in that offline realm. We've we've done that, and now we're getting to move to this next this next stage of hearing these things, hearing these benefits from our therapists, and, and looking to put the you know the research behind it. Now that we're finally having volumes and are able to to start to test these things, and, and you know, and I hope we'll, we'll be able to prove out that uh, you know the, these really are true. That we're able to drive greater engagement, um, you know, accelerate outcomes. Uh, I think that's that's one you know really huge potential I'd say of the technology. The the other area is just in um, in you know in the realm of of school therapy compliance is so important and there's so much work that goes into the documentation and verification that yes these services happened. Here's the therapy notes. Here's you know here here's the in some cases here's the evidence or, or defense if there's a legal challenge down the line about whether or not a student got services. So there's a very practical side of it as well, where when something happens in that online realm, uh, it's it, there there's more there's more evidence, it's more of a footprint, so to speak, um, to to be able to prove and document that uh, things happened as they should have happened. So I think that. That's maybe not, not as um, you know, not not as exciting or flashy as some of the other benefits, but I think it's really real in in the school world the, the ability to drive that that compliance and that evidence without um, without doing it through you know creating a bunch of paperwork or administrative burden for the staff. Do you have a dedicated uh, compliance person or, or legal team to to underpin what you're doing? Yeah, we do. We we have a legal team. And we also spend a lot of time on, on data privacy, right? There's um, there's the there's the IEP compliance side for schools of making sure that we're following the directives of what therapy needs to be provided. Then there's also um, because this you know this clinical interaction is happening online. There's the HIPAA considerations and and the you know student privacy and protections. So um, there there is a you know yes for sure we have a team and and are you know investing a lot in that. But it's really something that we see has value for the school clients um, that, you know, for the, for the therapy they're doing with us, rather than what they're doing on site, that, you know, they have that sort of embedded documentation and storing of the evidence, um, you know, if they need it later. So we try to make it easier on, on them down the line, because the, this is one area where, where there, there's always a compliance consideration. Mm, yeah, feel free to give shout outs to anybody in the team, by the way, not, not just the compliance and legal team, but uh, maybe the more creative uh, uh, members of the team or whoever. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's so that's so that's such a nice thing to to get to give a shout out. I have to I have to talk about Cole 
Leslie is our longest standing employee. He was part of the founding team um, and, you know, the, the original creator of the platform. So, you know, is so deeply immersed in the, uh, the creative sides of it in terms of how we create that dynamic engaging therapy environment, but also uh, deep, deep, uh, you know, hours spent on the privacy protection side, the compliance side. So um, yeah, there's, you know, what has gone into building a now 13, almost 14 year old platform for this purpose of a, you know, child's clinical interaction is really, is really actually, there's this deep expertise here from the people that have been doing it and developing it all along. It's uh, so, you know, we're, we're here interacting today through Zoom, which has that, that video interaction component, but, you know, imagine all of the other things that have to be built around it to have the multiple camera views and the views of, you know, the students' actions with their hands, as, as well as what they're saying, being able to see what they're doing with their mouse and control what they can and can't, uh, you know, get distracted by at any moment, being able to pull in, like I said, all of those games and activities. There's the, the technology itself that the team has built is really, um, it's really complicated when, when you start thinking about it from the perspective of the, you know, you've got a clinician driving that therapy experience and what does she want? What does she, you know, what, what's her sort of, you know, wish list of what goes, goes into her dashboard to run that effectively. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, you mentioned before how COVID changed everything, of course, mm -hmm. and in many ways, you know, I think that COVID sort of accelerated certain developments and there were certain things that would have happened quicker because of COVID um, than had COVID not happened at all. Uh, did COVID change anything? Um, I don't want to say for the better, but accelerate anything in, in terms of uh, development of the, of the platform? It, it definitely, for us, it was, it was at the beginning of COVID that we realized that that teletherapy platform had, uh, had, had a valuable role to play in and of itself for schools and therapists beyond our own team. So, you know, it was built in, 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 you know, our pre-COVID phase, the platform was built as a means to an end. It was how, how our team of clinicians delivered the services to, to our school customers. It wasn't something that we, you know, that we sold separately or, or that, you know, we allowed others to use. And then we very quickly in that first, you know, few month phase. And then that spring of 2020 realized that, you know, first we realized it with our own school partners that, they needed something very different from us at that moment. We, you know, we had this team that had figured out how to move a practice from offline to online and had built this technology tool to do it. So we started opening it up and um, doing these training sessions. We called them teletherapy 101 back then, where um, you know, we'd invite our school partners to come and learn and then you know, get access to use the platform for the rest of their work. And um, they were these, I mean, it was, you know, hundreds of people coming into these sessions and suddenly, you know, an entire workforce needed to become telepractitioners where many of them had, had no prior experience in, in that area. And out of that came an entirely new product line for us. So, you know, we, we started uh, in those early days, with, you know, letting our school partners 
use it at no charge. And we started getting calls and inquiries, um, you know, even from very large districts who, you know, were like, can we, can we buy licenses? Can we use it? Can you, can you run trainings for us? So it very rapidly turned into this, um, this new offering for us where we were not delivering the services ourselves with our team. We were teaching others how to do it and we were equipping them with the tools. And through that, we were able to invest a lot more in it. You know, we, we've, we've, that was when we first started looking at that platform as, um, an important tool in and of itself, not just a, you know, means for delivering a service, um, you know, that, that we had you know, the, a service that we had sold and instead thinking about how can we, you know, really create something here that someone will want to use not only while schools are closed, but, um, you know, back when they open, just, just continuing in their therapy practice. And that evolved into what is now its own product line for us. It's called Kanga. And it's, uh, it's a therapy platform that's available for even private practitioners to license and use. And by, you know, by doing that, we're just able to keep investing more and more in it. And we have, you know, we're growing that network of clinicians who are creating content, creating their own videos. And it's, it's become this, you know, this, this much bigger thing where we've been able to really, uh, really evolve what I think what telepractice is and, you know, kind of deepen the way that the way we think about it, the way the network of providers think about it. And, um, you know, just, just, push further beyond, you know, kind of what is anything and everything that, that could make your practice better, whether ultimately you're doing it online or you're using this technology sitting in a room with the child. Yeah. Well, talking of which, what would you like to do over the next couple of years in terms of uh, the tech side of the product? Uh, so for example, we've had many, com many conversations recently about AI, about you know, chat mm -hmm. and so on, on the podcast, but um, is there anything AI, AI, I can't speak anymore. Is there anything AI based that you think would really sort of supercharge what you're achieving? Yeah, I mean, we, we're definitely thinking and talking a lot. We, we're as um, as obsessed with this topic right now inside the company as as many are, and I think for us, and, and this is a part of I think how I how I view technology and our part of education in general. We're always thinking of how to how to leverage the technology to supercharge what our experts are doing, right? So as a, you know, as a booster to the human interaction, I guess is the way I'd say it as, a, you know, as opposed to a, a replacement for it or a proxy for it. Um, that I think I, I first started thinking that way back in, um, it's probably like 2015, 2016, when I was at tutor.com, we were working on this, this study with Carnegie Mellon, where we were taking all of the data, all the transcripts from our online tutoring sessions and analyzing them. Uh, and their team was looking for ways to create an AI driven tutoring tool. And what we found back then was that the most impactful things, you know, the, the biggest boosters to the tutoring result for the student came when their AI tool recommended actions for our tutors to take. And sometimes it was as simple as, uh, you know, recommending moments for positive feedback. And if the AI tool was used to uh, prompt the tutor to say, that's a great job, you're really getting that, it would be so much more effective than if the tool itself said, great job, you're, you're doing so well with that, right? So, you know, some of those early experiences with, you know, when AI was in a much rawer form, just really 
really made me believe in this idea that uh, we can, you know, we can make ourselves better. We can make our experts better by prompting, reminding, and, you know, kind of teeing up the, the best, the best tools to pull, the best games to pull, the best things, the right things to say, um, while still keeping the human interaction in it. So we think about that now in terms of our teletherapy platform and in using AI to build in you know, more prompts or way, ways to tee up and, you know, in a library that has thousands of items in it, um, how to, you know, how to make it, how to facilitate for that therapist. Here's what you could try now. Here's, you know, here's the sequence that, that you can use here. Um, that's one area. The other area is um, back on the more administrative uh, less glamorous side of paperwork and um, compliance documentation and all of that is um, so you know some of the some of the uses of chat GPT that I've found really exciting in our field are actually these very simple ones where you know a school psychologist that we work with found a way to uh, you know draft all of her reports using chat GPT to you know and, and in doing so you know shave minutes off of her time when she could then take that and you know and and put her final insights into it before finalizing each report so those ways of reducing administrative time so that you know more of the therapist time can be spent in that valuable interaction with the, with the child I think, it's these it's these ways around the edges of of the interaction that um, that I think we're looking to right now as the biggest boosts in our field uh, from ChatGPT or AI in general. Yeah, and our, uh, so our skill set becomes enhanced. It becomes more effective because mm -hmm. of uh, AI as opposed to negation. I like that. Yes, I like that word, enhanced. Yep. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So what about you then, Kate Everly Walker, the uh, legendary and until today oh. <laughs> of your own? Um, so I think that you know, look at, looking at what you've written recently, it'd be good to talk about that, this really difficult balance between your interest in education, in tech, in motherhood, in leadership. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to say something about the precarious and yet inspirational balance between all of those things? Yeah, I, I have a lot of things to say about about all that. Yeah, I wrote I I, I wrote a book, my my first book as yet my only book. Um, it's called The Good Boss: Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work, and it came out of my my reflections on my own experience. You know, work, working my way up the ladder, so to speak, and and ultimately becoming a CEO. And then, you know, looking back and recognizing all of these moments when a manager or a leader really, you know, really was gave me critical support at a moment that, you know, kept moving me forward and also identifying the times when, oh, wow, that could have been a lot easier if someone had um, had done had intervened there. So, um you know, when, and when I came to presence, which was uh, in that first year, actually, as I was publishing the book and, and starting to make more of these connections between um, my own experience and what, what I learned and I'm continuing to try to learn from it in terms of, you know, what's my responsibility now as a leader to make the path easier to, you know, spot inequities and, and, and address them and try to create environments that are more comfortable for everybody. Um, I, I found myself here at presence where, uh, we have, a significant majority of our employees are female, our leadership team is majority female, our therapist network is over 95% female, right? These, and, and you know, we're working in these 
um, you know, significant majority female environments. And it's really given me an opportunity to, you know, try to walk the walk, uh, not just, not just write about it, talk about it, um, and, you know, give suggestions for the way things can be better, but to really, really try to put into action here, you know, these, you know, my belief that if you want to create, uh, supportive, comfortable working environment for women or for any group that feels underrepresented, you, know, you, you have to change from the top and you have to take the responsibility for, for, you know, changing your policies, making sure that in the way you run meetings and the way you communicate and, you know, expect others to communicate that, that you're, you're being more open and, and flexible and, and listening to everybody. Mm. So, would you prefer to write a completely different book next or to update the current one because maybe things have developed and, and changed? So I finished a book recently and um, I read through it and I think, oh, that's out of date now. So, for example, yeah. um, my book was published in February this year, but ChatGPT um, hadn't didn't even exist when I submitted mm -hmm. the manuscript. Mm -hmm. So there's little things like this that, that happen that, that make you think, um, well, I'd love to have another go at the book or update it or yeah yeah I um when the book when the book first came out I I mean I had a similar experience in that um you know I mean because you you write it and uh people I don't know if everybody realizes this how how long of a time gap there is from when you submit that menu that final manuscript to when it's through all of the editing and, and printing and publishing right and by the time my book came out, I was already realizing through the Black Lives Matter movement, which was happening at the time of publication, um, that, you know, oh, wow, I really, you know, I, here I thought I was writing a book for the, for all underrepresented, but I was really writing it from the perspective of a white woman. And, you know, while I wasn't in the majority in my work experiences, they were majority male experiences. I didn't, I didn't think broadly enough about all of the other underrepresented groups. And uh, there are a lot of lessons and messages in my book that I felt like I wrote to narrowly for women when, you know, in fact, they're more valuable and more relevant if you think about it from the perspective of anyone in a company who is feeling underrepresented or in the minority. So that was, that was a big thing that I, that I experienced almost immediately. The other one now, um, you know, a couple of years later and a couple of years deeper into remote work and uh, experiencing a work environment that, you know, that, that, you know, no longer has to do with a lot of those in-office dynamics that, that I thought about and wrote a lot about as I was coming up in my career. Um, I thought now, you know, maybe I should, maybe that's a book. Maybe that's something is, is a new reflection into how do these, how do these interactions change? I think there are things that, there are things that are a lot better for for women, certainly in a remote work environment, um, you know, a whole chapter that I wrote about returning from maternity leave uh, and, you know, figuring out how to get back into that, you know, that cycle of like separating from your baby and, and staying focused at work. Um, you know, I, it's so nice to now read and, and hear from people who just never had to have that dramatic shift back because they were able to work from home for longer um after having their baby. So there's there there's things in in this, you know, this latest shift in 
the workforce to remote work, um, at least that have persisted for us. Presence is still 100% remote and expect to stay that way. I know, I know not every company is, but, um, you know, I think that gives us a whole new lens on, on how people experience the workplace. Yeah, and I don't know, I, I don't have a definitive opinion on remote working. And you've got me thinking there that if I was going to write a book about remote working, I'd probably outsource a great deal of the content to, well, sorry, crowdsource a lot of the content mm -hmm. because it, 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 I feel it would necessitate a, a variety of viewpoints because my, yeah. my viewpoint is just my viewpoint. Do you know what I mean? And well, yeah, and and I think that especially in these, you know, still early years of workplaces figuring out how they're going to do remote work, I, I think that there is there there is no one experience of remote work right now. I, I think we're each experiencing our our organizations, uh, you know, variation on on how they're trying to do remote work or hybrid work or what have you. So um, I, I think it's going to keep on shifting and and changing. Mm, yeah, definitely. You might have noticed it's getting dark in the UK at the moment, but that, that's fine. Uh, yes. <laughs> but five hours ahead of you, I think. Or <laughs> um, is it five hours? What time is it? It's Where five hours. Yeah, it's yeah, two, hours. 2.46 here. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, but that's that's fine. I'll just eventually disappear. <laughs> fading, but, fading back. <laughs> yeah. Listeners won't notice, but will they? Um, <laughs> let's talk uh, motherhood and work then. And, um, and I suppose... How that relates to tech, you know, a kind of imaginary Venn diagram, if you like, between tech, motherhood, and um, and uh, remote work. Um, mm -hmm. how, how's that working for you? Well, I like I, I find remote. First of all, remote work. Um, women women show a stronger preference for it than I think everybody is, is increasingly showing a preference for remote work, but uh, that's weighted even more heavily for women and then even more heavily for working mothers specifically. And I think it's with good reason. I mean, there, there, there are so many more ways for me to uh, feel good about my ability to cover the needs of my kids and the needs of my job when I'm able to, you know, blend minutes and, and moments in the day and cut out the commute and, you know, all, all of those things that are helpful about, about working from home. So, um, I, you know, I think I've been able to, to feel better about my approach to motherhood because I, you know, my kids, I, my kids can see me working they, you know, they, they know what I do They're, you know, I, I can, they, they, you know, they can pop into my home office and wave to my colleagues on a zoom and feel like, you know, in a way, I think they, they see more of my workplace, um, my virtual workplace than, than they would if I were, you know, kind of going off to an office every day. So I think it allows me to, you know, show more of my work to my kids, which is really important to me. I have two kids, they're both, both daughters. Um, and as they get older, now one, one is 14, one's 11. Um, you know, it's important to me that, that it not be two separate versions of me or two compartments of my life, but that, um, you know, I'm a mom and I work and part of my identity really is about my job and part of it really is about being a mom. And so I try to, you know, show my daughters a lot of it. I also talk a lot about my kids at work and, and everyone does. I mean, you know, as I said, the majority of our workforce are, are women, are working mothers. 
we do. We've got a lot of active Slack channels where we're seeing pictures of each other's kids and pets and, you know, the things that we're doing with them on, on the weekends and on vacations and so on. And, uh, you know, I, I, my belief is that to really be happy at work and productive at work, you have to be who you are. You have to feel authentic. You have to feel like you're sharing all of the elements of, of who you are. And, uh, you know, I, that, that's an area that I feel responsibility as a leader to, to do that first and, you know, kind of show that that's, you know, that that's welcomed that, um, you know, we, we all really, you know, can be, should be who, you know, all of who we are in, in the workplace. And, um, so, you know, that one thing that interests me a lot uh, that I talk about with other leaders is, um, everybody takes very different views of social media interactions, I find. And for me, one of my favorite things is interacting with my employees on Instagram and, you know, I share my account with them and keep it open. And, um, I, you know, I tell them that I'd love to be invited, but I, I won't go, you know, nosing my way in to anybody that, that doesn't want that interaction. But, you know, a lot of our team members do, and then I'm able to see what's going on in their lives and what they do for fun and what their, you know, what their families are up to. And I think it makes for, uh, you know, a more productive and, and happy experience in the workplace to really know each other. Um, it, so I'm always interested to talk about that because, you know, other people feel the opposite that like that's, you know, you really shouldn't, uh, you know, kind of butt into the personal lives of, of the people you work with and there should be lines and there should be barriers. So um, I don't know if you have a thought on that one. Then what's your take? Do you I connect think- on social media with colleagues? I don't, um, and I, I, I prefer it if I did, uh, for mm-hmm. the reasons that you're talking about there. I think that the, the barriers that we have, the, these demarcations between work and leisure, or work in our private life, yeah. are fabricated. They're, 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 mm-hmm. they're an illusion, and they, they should be broken down. That, that's my feeling. And I think um, I think it was really interesting what you said before about working from home and how your, your 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 children see you at work because they they can see that you're a role model and without that you'd just be rushing out to work really stressed and really you know not having time for them and then coming back really yeah. really stressed and not having time for them and they'd want they'd want a piece of you and you, you couldn't give them your attention because you'd be distracted and mm-hmm. having to balance everybody so so there's so many benefits there aren't there um yeah so i, I think yeah i, I think i'd, I'd I'd like that to change. I'm not really sure I have the power to make that change, but um, but I'm definitely one of these people because of the overarching culture, if you like, of of work in academia. It is very sort mm-hmm. of siloed, really. Yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. People do tend to just keep themselves to themselves and not let their private lives, uh, you know, impinge too much on their their work lives. So, um, so it's a convention that is quite strong. I think mm-hmm. I, don't feel- I think I think it I think it, it's a it's a rule that certainly existed in the past. I mean, I remember, I think in my first job out of college 20 plus years ago, I remember somebody telling me, uh, oh, don't accept Facebook Facebook back then that we all used, right? Don't accept Facebook requests from coworkers. Like that's that's not something to do. Um, and that, you know, I, for a long time, that was just, you know, a rule in my head of something that, you know, ultimately I started to open up and question. Um, I think also since rules like that were created, I think everybody has 
become a lot savvier in how they manage their social media presence anyway. I mean, you know, I, you know, any, anyone who is, who's sharing, you know, who's, who's following on Instagram or sharing on Instagram, you know, what they're seeing or what I'm seeing of them is, is what they choose to show. Right. So I, I think of it as um, not overly intrusive or overly personal in that regard. I'm getting to see what, what they choose to share. Mm-hmm. And I think that's different. I think, I think back in the day, um, you know, people weren't that thoughtful or, or savvy about what they posted and what they shared. I think that's, I think everything, like everything, it has evolved, it will evolve. But um, yeah, I, I am a big believer in, in sort of breaking down some of those old rules and um, and conventions, like you say, because um, I, I think that there's a lot to be gained from seeing what people choose, choose to show you and, and what's going on in their lives. Yeah, there certainly is. I suppose the convention uh, in my uh, context probably came from the fact that it's, you know, I'm used to working in schools and universities and colleges and mm-hmm. so on. So mm-hmm. because I'm an educator, you do yeah. post close to your chest. So, it's, you know, it's not, not it's not really advisable to be posting like this stuff on social That's media. Right. Look, yeah. look at me drinking alcohol. And- <laughs> <laughs> you have to so, be extra, extra thoughtful about what, yes, what you show, what you share. Yeah. And who, and, who you, and who you connect with. Yeah. Yeah. Def- oh, definitely. Yeah. Who you can be, and also uh, opinions too. That, you know, who, who you can potentially mm. be aligned with. You know, um, unbeknown to you, which which I think is interesting, an interesting phenomenon, which, which can, can create a bit of paranoia at times. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't have I don't have ex- any extreme opinions, of course, but I don't express opinions really on on social media, apart from maybe about education or technology. My my niches, my niches. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I get in my head a lot about that. Like, do I, like, is it my responsibility to have an opinion about that and to say it? Do I, do I have a right to share my opinion? Does anyone, why would anyone care what my opinion is on that? I think um, that that's changing a lot too, right? It used, I I think it used to be clearer that, um, you know, you shouldn't share opinions. And now there are definitely times and topics where I feel like I I do need to, you know, share my view. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I do on, on occasions, but mm-hmm. uh, you have to be very, very careful, don't you? Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm so yeah. glad we, uh, we managed to. Uh, with, Me uh, too. Me too. Yeah. Thank you for doing it late on your end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kate. Uh, please keep in touch and let us know how it's going. And I'll put this out in a few in a few days and put it all over the socials, of course. Great. But um, it's been such a fascinating conversation. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. So hopefully we'll do it again. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, that's all from EdTech Innovators this time can't wait to see you again kind of i'll leave a link to kw walker's book in the show notes and to my latest one as well goal setting and problem solving in a tech enhanced classroom but kw walker's book is the good boss nine ways every manager can support women at work see you again soon see you later